0: The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious,
1: Serious, Serious Fun.
0: mellow phoenix studios hosts uh, eric morgan brian martin and chuck ryback of the voyager and cannonball podcast respectively to talk about this subject now this is a subject very very near and dear to my heart not just star wars but the idea of uh, action figures and, and collectibles and that kind of thing i mean right now i could wave my arm and knock over i've got a shang chi over here i got a charizard i got a rick flair over there um you know this is something that's very very fun and, and it really this is a great opportunity for me to kind of think about why this stuff matters? Like, why do we seek out um, these expressions of days gone by, things, characters, stories that we enjoyed in our youth? And Star Wars is really kind of the epitome of that. So it was really, really cool. And if you haven't seen the exhibit, that's okay. Um, you know, you can certainly in the show notes I've got a link to give you an idea what the exhibit looked like. I actually did not get to go see the exhibit, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I, this topic, I think the, the show really goes into some very different directions uh, than just being a recap of the. Uh, events So definitely worth listening. A lot of fun to record this. Love hanging out with these guys. So here we go. Big special crossover. Eric Morgan, Ryan Martin, Chuck Ryback, Voyager, and Cannonball together with serious fun. Ooh.
2: Hello, and welcome to a special crossover podcast of Cannonball, Series Fun, and Voyager. I'm Eric Morgan, the Editor-in-Chief of Voyager, Northeast Wisconsin's Historical Review. I'm also a professor of History and Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'd love for my colleagues and good friends to introduce themselves as we talk today about nostalgia, specifically surrounding the Star Wars franchise and a wonderful toy exhibit that was featured at the Oshkosh Public Museum earlier this year.
3: I'll jump in if that's okay. I'm Chuck Ryback. I am associated with numerous podcasts these days, but I guess Cannonball is sort of my brain creation. I'm the Dean of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UW-Green Bay, and when I'm not doing that, I'm a run-of-the-mill English professor, and I'm currently in the long string of poor movie-watching choices, and I really need to break out of my slump, and I'm hoping today we'll do something about that. Ryan Martin, you are next.
1: Hey everybody, I'm Ryan Martin. I'm the Associate Dean for the College of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences. I am a psychologist uh, as well and um, uh, and a co-host of of Cannonball with Chuck Ryback. And my feelings about Star Wars run very deep and are complicated and not altogether positive. So things might get real today. Brian Carr, go ahead.
0: Yes, my name is Brian Carr. I am the host and producer of Serious Fun, another fine program on the Phoenix Studios podcast network. Uh, I am an associate professor in the communication and information science programs here at UWGB, as well as part of the Women's and Gender Studies faculty and advisor to Black Student Union. Uh, And uh, based on the previous conversation, I'm apparently the problem child of the podcast. And I wear my title as the bad boy of arts, humanities and social sciences proudly. I love
2: that Brian. We're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, You're going to totally love our show. Um, Just for a little background, um, the inspiration for today's program came from um, a traveling exhibit um, titled Star Wars The Nostalgia Awakens, which uh, was available at the Oshkosh Public Museum um, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin earlier in 2021. Um, This was a collection of Kenner Star Wars figures. Um, We'll get into the details of what that entailed in a little bit. Um, and it was the lifetime work of Jared Roll. Uh, Jared it cannot be with us today, unfortunately, um, but uh, his, his amazing collection of, of toys, uh, play sets, et cetera, was an amazing nostalgic trip back to my own childhood. Um, and that's why I wanted uh, us to get together today and, and talk about um, the origins of, um, of nostalgia in this uh, amazing universe of Star Wars and branching out, you know, into various other, other universes. Um, just to give Jared some uh, credit, um, he's a Star Wars enthusiast and museum curator from Onalaska, Wisconsin. He's currently the director of the Monroe County Local History Room and Museum in Sparta. And his traveling exhibit, uh, again, Star Wars, The Nostalgia Awakens, um, features all of the Kenner original Kenner figures, 100 in all, arranged chronologically by film in one single display case per film, as well as numerous ships and playsets which are adorned with additional characters in media res. So, for example, um, one of my favorites was the uh, most Eisley Cantina where a diminutive version of Han Solo is facing off with the bounty hunter Greedo, and Han Solo was definitely shooting first. Um, all right, gentlemen, so uh, let us get started. Um, maybe we want to go back to the origins of uh, action figures and how uh, Star Wars um, initiated what became you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. Brian, do you want to um, uh, chime in a little bit here about the, uh, the origins of uh, this amazing story and how it was actually the action figures rather than the films that helped George Lucas, uh, the, the, the director and creator of Star Wars, um, to become a multi-billionaire?
0: Yeah, and, and and so thank you. Um, you know, this is something I, I think the important thing you have to understand is that the modern concept we have of action figures and collectibles and you know, nerd, you know, nerd culture being tied to consumerism really largely starts with Star Wars. Um, you know, Star Wars is the second Probably you could argue the second real summer blockbuster uh, with a hat tip to Ryan. Of course, the first is Jaws. I believe Jaws came like two years before. I think Star Wars, I think uh, New Hope was like 77.
3: That is correct.
0: Two years. And then, yeah. So Jaws was 75. Um, the year of my birth, by the way, another thing we should know. So that. you're just
1: intertwined. Exactly. With the shark. Uh,
2: so, so does that mean something about, about you, Ryan, that you were born in the year of Jaws? I wonder. That's
1: interesting. It, it, it does indeed. It was two great things entered the world in 1975. Uh, <laughs> and those things have been linked ever since.
0: <laughs> this is where if we were in person, I'd be throwing stuff at Ryan anyway. Uh, <laughs> but he's right. Ryan's great. Anyway, um, let's. So, you know jaws was not heavily merchandised to my understanding i mean later on they would do toys and tie-ins and that kind of stuff and i believe um NECA just put out some jaws action figures of the the three main characters from the movie now, they probably did the shark too i'm not 100 percent um but uh star wars really kind of changed things Now understand that star wars was not a thing the studio was super behind um, Eric, as you know, we talked about earlier, Lucas had been, uh, you know, he'd done American graffiti. He was fairly well regarded, but he's also basically blowing all his capital and goodwill from that movie on this giant boondoggle out in the Tunisian desert called star Wars. Um, based on like old, like Buck Rogers serials and world war two movies and samurai films, like basically it's all just like literally most of it's lifted from the hidden fortress, which is an Akira Kurosawa film, which, you know, most directors were lifting from Akira Kurosawa back then. Anyway, um, the uh So this was a, and if you ever wanna really look at how much of a crapshoot Star Wars was at first and how much it was just like, I've heard it referred to as an accidental masterpiece and that's 100% correct. Star Wars should not have worked. There is no reason Star Wars should have worked. It was a tortured production. Lucas was not necessarily the best editor. A lot of the credit for the movie being as good as it was has to go to his then wife, um, Marsha, um, who was the editor on the film. um, And I believe won an Academy Award for it. Um but it often gets left out of these histories. And I just wanna really give a shout out to her because she was- I was gonna
2: say the, the first cuts of, of Star Wars, the original were incredibly rough. Yeah. The pacing was terrible. There are some great featurettes on YouTube um, that show how important the editing was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, you know, we, we, we kind of see the, 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 the opposite of this, right? When the prequels come out and um, Lucas doesn't necessarily have anybody to rein him in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh so yeah incredibly important point about editing
0: um yeah and again like they cover a lot of this empire dream so i highly recommend you check that out um but uh so my understanding basically that the deal was fox is like okay you know what we're this is getting really expensive here's the deal you know we can you can get your regular director's salary or we'll just give you like a reduced salary and then you get to keep all merchandise rights because nobody's gonna buy toys on this movie lucas is like "Eh, i bet they will And it turns out he was right. Um, That choice made him a multi-billionaire. And more than any of the movies or anything else, that's why Star Wars arguably stuck around as long as it did. Um, you You can chalk a lot of that up to those toys and that merchandise, and that is why Lucas became a very wealthy man.
2: So I just want to give some statistics here to back up uh, everything that Brian is saying. So Star Wars had a remarkably modest budget, um, $11 million. Uh, the most expensive movie of the 1970s was 1978 Superman, which cost five times that. Star Wars earned a staggering $503 million worldwide in 1977. Um, in 1978 alone, um, uh, that's when the toys started being produced. We can talk about... It was delayed. Uh, a lot of it has to do, of course, because nobody expected this to be a, a, a you know worldwide phenomenon. Um, toys alone in 1978 grossed one hundred million dollars. And for uh, our listeners who don't know this in 2012, uh, 35 years after the release of Star Wars, now a new hope, um, Lucas sold his company, Lucasfilm to uh, Disney for four billion. Yes, that's with a B dollars.
0: He said he kind of regretted doing it, uh, whether that's just because he didn't like giving up the creative control or just thinks he could have gotten more. And I think most of it actually went to, like, educational charities and stuff like that. I don't think he actually kept much of the actual sale money. Um, But, uh, yes, but, you know, Star Wars becoming a major hit meant that every movie after that had toy lines and merchandise associated with it right off the bat, no matter matter how good or bad the movie was, because they're trying to make money on that end. And, you know, there's the Immortal Line and Spaceballs merchandising where the real money is made. Um, well, Lucas,
2: because he took that risk and took that, you know, pay cut. And I mean, it was $500 million, pay 500000 pay cut. I'm yeah. sorry. of uh, was directing salary that gave him the artistic freedom to do whatever he wanted to um, in his universe. I mean, he had already bucked uh, tradition, um, you know, the, the famous opening crawl of Star Wars films, as you know, most people uh, are probably aware, almost always started with credits, right, um, due to Directors Guild and and Actors Guild you know agreements um and lucas said no that's not what i'm going to do that's not my vision and so he was able to take these risks um and these 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 risks paid off, you know, uh, tremendously. So, you know, guys, let's talk about what nostalgia is, right? Um, and why perhaps um, Star Wars specifically has so much nostalgia tied to it. Um, you know, when the prequels came out from 1999 to 2005, um, I heard, as, as you, all of you did, you know, a lot of talk amongst our contemporaries who grew up with Star Wars in the 1970s and 1980s, George Lucas ruined my childhood. Um, I didn't believe that necessarily, but I think that kind of sentiment absolutely has something to do with nostalgia. Right. Um, And so why don't we talk about, you know, what what is nostalgia and how is it tied into popular culture and then Star Wars specifically? Um, So any of us who want to talk about, you know, what nostalgia is and what it means specifically with popular culture?
3: Well, I'll give you two quick anecdotes. So. The first thing I'd say is I I have so I saw Star Wars in the theater when it came out, and I can remember that experience. And I was young then, right? But I also how old were you in 1977? Just for I I would have been turning eight in the December of that year, and so I was. So Chuck was eight, Ryan was two. I
2: was
0: born two years later, and then Brian. I was born in 1985, so I think all the Star Wars movies had come out by that point.
2: Okay, so that that's our range of ages, though. Okay, so so Chuck Chuck yeah. was, was eight.
3: So I had an uncle at the time who worked at Toys R Us, which was like a boundless place filled with amazing things. And I remember going to see him at work and begging him to practically gift me for free Star Wars action figures, because even at that time, like, I wanted those, because I had seen the movie— you know, and I wasn't a collector, obviously, like I wanted to play with them and get, get my hands on them and recreate the things that I had seen. And it, the second story connected to that just quickly is I, I can tie my giving up on believing in Santa Claus to something similar and that if you remember the original battlestar galactica tv show which had come out i want to say after this right and was looking to to emulate it was i loved the ships in battlestar galactica and so i went hunting in my house and discovered these presents that and that was it my childhood was over but um like i just i'm interested in that like even then i knew that i wanted these things i wanted to get my hands on them and you know to your point eric uh, at least to your question, like I find nostalgia sometimes, like I think it's people feel it's self referential, but in some ways, like to me, it's the things that allowed you to bond to other people and that you shared a certain experience with and kind of missing that, I guess, in some ways. So there is my childhood in a nutshell.
1: Mine is mine is similar in that. So I was I was too young to see the first one in the theater. I did see the second one in the theater though, um, and the third. And I remember being really scared by the second one. By the way, I think I watched most of it with my eyes shut. I was only four, and um, and the I uh, on
3: the way out. I had to be dragged out of the theater crying because. I mean, Darth
2: Vader had to be really scary to a four-year-old
3: in Empire. You know what really got me
1: was the uh, the snow monster at the beginning. I think that was what, and it's right out of the gate, you know. So, but I was. Sorry, sorry,
2: Brian. (laughs) Brian, Brian is our fact checker, so that we're not
0: mispronouncing
2: anything or. If we
0: don't have facts, we have anarchy. That's all I'm saying. Well I was I was truly
1: you know th- these movies age wise just absolutely hit me right because and part of the reason why is it also corresponded not just with the toys but for us our first VCR and so I got to watch the first movie essentially on repeat and I remember as a kid watching the first Star Wars till the end just hitting the rewind button and starting it over the second it was it was done and just doing that we had rented it and doing that for essentially 24 hours right just just watching this movie i also for christmas um got the death star um which was at the time a coveted coveted uh toy and and i for all of the reasons that chuck mentioned just the idea that i could act out the scenes That I could essentially live vicariously through those toys. I mean, I I was obsessed with with the Star Wars movies throughout, basically. Um, In fact, so much so that I still remember accidentally spoiling um, uh, the, the third one for my brother. Um just by talking about it so much, he hadn't seen it yet, and I accidentally spoiled something important for him and be and him being so upset with me and me feeling devastated that like these are you know these are hallmarks of my childhood memories is just this stuff and but and I mentioned in the intro that my my feelings run deep, and part of it is because I'm not gonna say that anybody ruined my childhood that's not how time works uh but I will say i I haven't enjoyed them nearly as much in adulthood and I'm sort of okay with that. I'm okay not being really a fan of them anymore because just because they were so wonderful to me when I was growing up, I had so much fun with them and and none of this has ruined that. I just, but I don't necessarily consider myself a fan of star Wars anymore. Um, even, even though I've sort of liked them, I'm just like the obsession isn't there. The interest isn't necessarily there. I've had a really hard time getting my own kids that interested in them. And so, you know, when I compare it to other things that I am sort of obsessed with now, Marvel specifically, um, to me, it, it has been. I, I think the nostalgia is really what I'm left with.
2: I'm glad you brought up uh, your kids, Ryan. Well, Ryan and Chuck, you both have have little ones. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, well, Ryan, you've said your kids are not too interested in the Star Wars universe. Chuck, how about yours?
3: I they are. Um, I, so I have two daughters, and so the emergence of the new the newer batch of star Wars films with Ray as a lead character was really interesting to them to see a blockbuster film with a female lead. And, you know, and they had seen the first star Wars, or I mean the, what's the, uh, what's the new one. It's the force awakens, the first one of that series. Yep. That's right. And, you know, so that came out before, Oh, Brian, will correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm, I'm good is uh, wonder woman that came out before then. And so, there was interest in Ray as a character and I think they were they they were definitely interested but they're not they're not obsessive about it in the way that like I would have been about Indiana Jones or Star Wars when I was a kid they've kind of moved on it could be my kids are weird. My younger daughter is into Criterion Collection and foreign directors right now, and she's. I good. mean,
2: that's that's amazing, but yeah, definitely <laughs> probably not the norm.
3: Like she talks to me about Wong Kar Wai, who I finally saw my first Wong Kar Wai film, and um, you know, and I, I think streaming and the way that kids take in television and entertainment is so has kind of changed that. Like there was a specialness to going to the movies and the anticipation of waiting for something to come out that I feel has been displaced. You know, the closest thing, Eric, that I could get to that is Stranger Things. When Stranger Things came out, even though it was about the time of my childhood and not theirs, they did get to experience the anticipation of, okay, season two is gonna come out and it's gonna be amazing. So that that is the that's my family situation right now.
2: No, that's really interesting. And I mean, I think Ryan brought up a a good point about this too. I mean, our, the way we, we engage with entertainment has changed just drastically over the last five years with on demand streaming. Um, but I like Ryan, when I was a kid, I watched, so my dad had taped, um, uh, star wars or new hope and and empire strikes back on vhs off the tv right so he like sat there with a little clicker to to edit out the the commercials and whatever and that was actually my only uh, experience with both of those films, um, until I was able to buy the actual VHS. I, uh, when they were re-released in like the early 1990s. Um, so it was, it was, you know, interesting to watch a better version once I wasn't watching my dad's like edited version. Um, but you know, today, as you're saying, not only us adults, but you know, younger folks interact so much differently and that anticipation isn't necessarily, you know, the, the same thing. Um, like I'm thinking back to 1999 when The Phantom Menace was released. You know, people people stood outside theaters for for weeks, months, right, in anticipation of that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to envision that kind of thing, particularly when you can watch the blockbusters at home, right? Um, Brian was saying he watched Suicide Squad twice this past weekend. So, um, yeah, because <laughs> I'm that kind of degenerate. Yes. <laughs> you know- to that point, Eric, that's interesting. You
1: got me thinking about it because I can my other two kid obsessions were um, oddly enough. So Indiana Jones, yes, but specifically the one I watched a billion times because I'd recorded it was uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is, I mean, I think the worst of the, those the, weakest original of the three
2: of the three by far.
1: Yeah. And uh, but I've seen it so, so many times because I, I had it, you know, it was available to me. The other one, oddly enough, was um, uh, James Bond. I, we had taped, for your eyes only, uh, 19, I think 81, off TV and I just watched it over and over and over again because again, we had it with the commercials and, and everything. And so a lot of my sort of modern obsessions as far as pop culture really have to do with stuff that we had access to um, in, in uh, sort of on demand.
2: It's a great point. And for those of you who don't know or haven't listened to uh, Cannibal Ryan is our campus's James Bond aficionado. So um, perhaps- Indeed,
3: a- indeed. I want to do that podcast at some point. Please have me on. Yeah, Ryan, one very quick point is that I'm, speaking about movies and, you know, Eric, how we consume things, like I was talking to my daughters the other day about, you know, they've never in their lives had to wait to hear a song that they wanna hear. Like they don't have to wait for the top eight at eight, or you don't have to call anybody to request something, you know, like there, there's no, the anticipation is, is not there. They just experience it in a different way.
2: It's so true. You know, um, one of my favorite albums when I was a, a, t- a teenager, I was a huge fan of U2, and when their album Pop came out in 1997, the anticipation for me personally was, was massive. I, um, I kind of, skipped school early that day. I think it was my senior year of high school, went to the Best Buy or wherever it was in the mall, came home, put that CD on um, and, you know, just listened to it over and over and over again. And, you know, now, right. Do we even listen to albums? Right. Um, The the concept of an album is uh, perhaps a uh, I don't know, a a nostalgic one now. Right. So that would be a good um, certainly a good conversation for for another podcast with some of our music folks, perhaps. Um, my my nephew just real quick.
1: My nephew just recently told me he stayed up and like super late one night waiting for someone's album to drop, and then it didn't. And he did it purely based on a rumor that he heard it might drop that night, so he was waiting on Spotify all all evening for it to drop. And so hot. there is there is a piece of that, but you're right, it's super rare now. I remember the first time my kids saw a commercial and we're utterly floored. <laughs> it, like my my son came in he's like they keep breaking into my show to try and sell me stuff. What what is going on? You
2: know. Well, what's funny too is how, you know, we grew up with commercials obviously, but now like when they pop up on any of the streaming services that that have them, I get really annoyed because I've also acclimated so much to not having that, um, and they pop up everywhere. It's not just you know, on um, streaming services. Um, but you know, people have bills to pay, I suppose. Um, so is there anything about, you know, the Star Wars universe itself um, that lends itself particularly towards nostalgia? I wanted to go back to an earlier point that Chuck was making about buying the toys, playing with the toys, recreating. Um, those scenes from the films. But I also think what these action figures allowed was, you know, not just the ability to relive the films, but to be creative, right. And to work that imagination, which is so important, um, you know, when you're, when you're a kid to imagine possibilities. And I think that's what I liked about the various action figures um uh gi joe was my other big one i know that for you ryan that was another big one too um and so i i loved being able to create new adventures out of out of that um rather than you know just just doing the same thing um so i just wanted to mention i think that was one of the cool things about um the the action figures that respond from the star wars franchise that allowed kids to you know, not only use their imaginations, but they had this tangible thing, right? That they that they could you know physically do and have these adventures with. Um, so, is there something about Star Wars itself, um, whether it's the storytelling, whether it's it's you know a classic Joseph Campbell hero's journey, um, whether it's the vast universe and the world building um, that that seems to lend itself to uh, nostalgia? I had not heard a single person uh, with Marvel's Cinematic Universe saying, oh, you know, Marvel has ruined my childhood from, you know, the the Jack Kirby days or whatever. So I'm interested.
0: So I'll, uh, my personal kind of fandom for Star Wars, honestly, you know, because I, I watched the movies, I had the VHS, you know, with like the interviews with Lucas and all that. Um, but what really was my Star Wars were the books. Uh, the novels, like you had like your, uh, you know, um, Wraith Squadron and, you know, that was this, I mean, like uh, the the Wedge Antilles, uh, you know, that kind of stuff with like the X-Wing pilots. That's the stuff I really spent a lot of time reading. Right. And so what struck me in the way I've always thought about Star Wars is that so much of, you know, Star Wars is this idea, like there's a million characters, um, you know, in each movie, most of them are not going to have speaking parts. Most of them are not going to, um, you You know, really do a whole lot, but the way that they have built out this franchise, largely to make money from it, I don't think this is all a creative decision, was that each of these characters has a backstory, right? And that backstory either comes from Lucas in some cases or was established on the back of of one of the original action figure boxes or in a novel or a comic somewhere. But, you know, people will come to this and say, hey, here's this one guy who shows up like there are diehard fandoms for the bounty hunters in Empire Strikes Back. Not even like, you know, Boba Fett is a character that basically exists in the popular consciousness because he was cool and made a cool toy. Um, who
2: has like four lines and then none yeah. of the other um, bounty hunters even utter a single word um, right. on Darth Vader's ship. But, but as you say, people
0: are, are huge fans, right? Yeah, exactly. I will ride or die for Zuckus, okay? <laughs> um, you know, he's just a weird little bug man. I love him. Um, But, you know, and and so what strikes me is that this whole big universe is this perfect sort of canvas for different creatives to play in. Like some of the most enduring Star Wars stuff for me is not even stuff that Lucas did. Um, It's, you know, folks like Michael Stackpole. Um, It's uh, um, Zahn. Zahn, yep, Zahn. So I just
2: want to, uh, for 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 our listeners who don't you know know about this, this was known uh, before Disney uh, purchased Lucasfilm as the expanded universe. It's now yep. known as Legends. Mm-hmm. Um, so Star Wars used to have this kind of complicated um, canon system, right? And basically, like anything that was in a film or came out of Lucas's mouth was canon. And then there are all these other levels. Uh, but basically, now it's just what Disney says, and then this thing called legends. Yep. Um, and so as, as Brian was, was saying, um, you had video games, you mm-hmm. had um, tons of novels, you had comic books. Uh, I read the Marvel comic books in mm-hmm. the 1990s and there were all of these characters. Um, there's actually a, a few really interesting books that have just come out. The first one, so they're, 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 they're uh, retellings of the original trilogy. Each chapter is from the point of view of a very minor character from the Mm -hmm. film who might not even have a speaking role. The first book's called From a Certain Point of View. Um, It's really interesting. Um, I think like one of the desert rats even has like they're very short stories. They're really interesting. And I wanted to mention, since you're bringing up very minor characters, I don't know if any of you know this, but a former colleague of ours is – a expanded universe character. Um, Greg Aldrete, our, uh, our former um, colleague in humanities and history, um, he had friends who worked in the Star Wars universe, worked for Lucasfilm. I think he had a friend who wrote one novel. And then he also had a friend who um, helped Lucasfilm find the original uh, Tunisian um, uh, film sites because they had been lost. Um, because as we know, Greg was a, is an ancient historian, archaeologist, etc. Um, and so there is a character from The Phantom Menace. You can look him up. His name is Agrippa Aldrete. Uh, Agrippa was Greg's favorite Roman emperor, and then Aldrete is his last name. So, yeah, look it up, Agrippa Aldrete.
3: There he is. That's amazing. That, and That
2: might be know. the
1: coolest
0: fact I've learned in uh, <laughs> quite some time. So
1: that's amazing. <laughs> I already
3: thought Greg was pretty
1: amazing.
0: Right,
3: exactly. So, so that You yeah. cannot
0: not start every, like, PAR off with that information. <laughs> like, you know, whatever else I I've would. done,
3: I was in Star Wars, man. <laughs> You know, Eric, to your to your question, like, I, I think about this a lot, and I, you know, when I've rewatched the Star Wars movies, to me, like, the first two, there's a lot of those that shouldn't have worked. Like, Darth Vader spends the majority of the first two movies in meetings. Now, I understand why that would make him evil, but, like...
2: Reminds me of Academia.
3: These are blockbuster movies that have meetings as, like, set pieces. You know, they just have meetings, and, but I also, like, one of the things that at least resonated for me thinking about growing up in the constant fear of nuclear war, that you could watch something with a planet killing technology be defeated by just a small group of of people and that 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 resonated for me. I mean, I know the Cold War long predates me and it you know, for me I attach nuclear catastrophe to the Reagan years really and kind of the buildup there. And so Star Wars was Ahead of that for me, you know, not in the public consciousness, but in mine at least. That I don't know. There, it was the it was the greatest fear I had as a child, and that movie seemed to address it for me.
2: I, I think it absolutely was in the public consciousness. I mean, I think we often forget. You know, Star Wars Star Wars is phenomenon. It may not have been the same at a different time. Um, Let's look at what's happening in, in May of 1977 when Star Wars comes out, right? Um, We're just emerging from the, the Vietnam War debacle. We are just emerging from the Watergate scandal and the complete distrust of the American people in the US government. I mean, that's why Jimmy Carter won a close election in 1976, right, he was an outsider and he was able to, you know, bring uh, an honesty to, to the White House that didn't exist um, with the, the presidencies in the 1960s and the 1970s. The American economy, was completely awful, right? You had stagnating wages and um, incredible inflation. It was a dark time. It was definitely a dark time, um, and the Cold War absolutely was 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 there in everyone's consciousness. Um, and you had an energy crisis as well. So Star Wars offered this really stark black and white worldview. You know the the empire was evil. The rebellion was good, and um, you know despite the fact that the uh, the evil empire had this you know world destroying new weapon, the Death Star, we got to see this ragtag bundle of 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 rebels um, who were fun, um, who were idealistic. Uh, we got to see them defeat this evil and honestly i think star wars was exactly what people needed in 1977 it was it was you know people may not have been thinking that necessarily consciously but subconsciously they needed that you know it was escapism but it was also like it was something that they could look at and and say, "Wow, you know, there is good in the world. There is good in the universe. Um, you know, there is hope." And it's it's one of the reasons people saw it. You know, six, seven, eight, ten times. Nobody does that anymore. So, Chuck, I think you brought up a great point, and I, I think the 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 public shared your sentiment without question. I think it's very it's you know it's something we don't talk about the historic context of, of Star Wars emerging at this this very specific time when it was absolutely needed.
0: And never forget, this is an inherently political film. Um, Lucas has been very, very open about who the Empire is meant to represent, and it ain't. Us. It, it, it isn't the, you know, it isn't our enemies. It's us, right? America is supposed to be the Empire, um, you know, and that's why I always get a little. I, I, I I've, I'm gone past laughing. I don't, I don't laugh anymore. I just get mad when people are like, I don't like that they're introducing politics into Star Wars. Politics was already there. Right, what you're mad about is that women and people of color, and it and that's a completely different problem that you need to get help with. But um and you know, we saw a similar thing, uh, you know, and speaking of like franchises built on nostalgia for a bygone era, Lord of the Rings, right? When the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which by the way is my um second favorite film trilogy, not behind Star Wars, but behind the naked gun. Um, but my uh but when that series came out, it came out right after 9-11. Like it was around the holidays after 9-11. And those movies, you know, were obviously in production well before that, but they became sort of this thing, like almost like they took on greater resonance at that time. And I definitely remember, like you know, this, you know, the controversy over are they going to call it the Two Towers? How disrespectful! It's like Tolkien wrote the Two Towers like, decades ago. It's fine, um, but you know, uh, the, the speech that Sam is the end of it is, you know, kind of took on that resonance, you know, that there is good in the world we're fighting for a lot more explicitly, I think, than Star Wars did, but coming from that same sort of place.
1: I think that speech was added after the fact after the it might I mean, have it's, been. it's from the uh, I mean it's from the the novel or a very a version is from the novel but I think the decision to include it was made after after the fact no I wanted to right. say something about the the, the toys in particular and, and why I think they hit the way they did is that I think the inventiveness I, I think you know the inventiveness of the characters, the way they looked, was not something we had seen a ton of. But also, I think the, the thing that people really seemed to covet at the time were the the, the the crafts, you know, the ships, the Death Star. The, I mean, I, I was thinking, Chuck, of your story. So my best friend growing up uh, told me once he was raised in a in a relatively conservative Christian household, and he said he prayed every night for an adat after uh, after um, whatever came out. Empire Strikes Back came out. He said he prayed every night for an <laughs> adat, and um, he said when he didn't get it, he actually lost his faith in God. And so
2: your friend this. became an atheist because he yeah. did not get exactly an
1: ATA but ATA. the best part about this story is that the last time I was at his house, he has one now. So as an adult, he solved this problem. I don't know if he has faith in God anymore, but um, but I think that that speaks to uh, to something about the how cool. I mean, I never had an ad at right. How cool that craft, that structure was and how different it was from other things we've seen that wing fighters, all of that was so um was so clever. And it really was in a in a lot of ways more clever than most toys to come out of that era. The well, I was only gonna thing-
2: say, yeah, comp- compare the, you know, the Death Star playset that you had with mm-hmm. like, I don't know, Barbie's house yeah. or I, I don't even know if the G.I. <laughs> Joe's from the nineteen sixties had playsets. I mean, in the nineteen eighties version they did, but the 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 larger universe was important to the Star Wars toys, Ryan. I absolutely agree with that right i mean even like you know the other the other big toy i had that i was super proud of as a kid was
1: castle grayskull from oh uh, man that was awesome yeah i loved it Teen it man was too. cool but it was in no way as cool as as the death star like that was just such a rad toy that like had so many different elements from and built right from the movie right the little the the garbage monster the i, I know it has a name brian um the, well, getting the, the
3: millennium uh, falcon was the yeah. prized moment of my youth i think yeah Absolutely. It's the Dianaga, by the way. (laughs) I knew you'd know it.
0: I knew you'd know it. it. There is actually in the book that uh, Eric referred to, there is a story written from the perspective of uh, the Dianaga by uh, African futurist writer Nettie Okerefor. I believe that's the one she wrote. And it's tremendous. Like that whole – and shout out to John Jackson Miller, uh, Wisconsin native and, uh, you know, someone who's been on my show before – um, he's uh, he also has a story and I actually have a copy of that first one that he signed I have to get the Empire Strikes Back or uh, one, I haven't gotten that one yet But
2: Do you remember the title of the Empire Strikes Back one? I don't either I think they're
0: all from a certain point a certain of view, point of view. Like that's okay. just the anthology brand um, that they're using but it's, it's a really cool idea
2: So I wanted to give our listeners just a little background on the Star Wars action figures they had a bit of a rocky start um, merchandising was something that Lucas wanted to do from the beginning obviously because he, you know if, Forwent um, half a million dollars of his director's salary to uh, maintain that that kind of control. Um, he went to a few um, toy producers. Uh, the Mago Corporation was the largest toy producer at the time they passed. And finally, Kenner, based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, they're now defunct, I believe, but um, they agreed to produce these toys. And interestingly, you know, the film debuts in May of 1977. The first toys were not shipped for Nearly a year later, um, because uh, the the phenomenon, obviously nobody knew, it was going to become the phenomenon. Early on, and these action figures, they were 3.75 inches, which, uh, Brian, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but those were smaller than previous um, action figures from the 1960s, which were much larger. Um, And uh, early on, you couldn't even buy the actual action figures. You had to send in this early bird certificate. It was just this piece of cardboard, basically. Um, And so, um, you know, Lucas would have made even more had, you know, Kenner actually started producing toys in 19, earlier 19. But, yeah, think about it, you know, what, seven or eight months in, there were no toys available for Christmas of 1977. So it wasn't until 1978 when people could um, actually buy these toys. And then there were 100 total action figures um, from the original um, toy Run, which was from 1978 to 1985, plus all the sets, et cetera. And in uh, Jared Roll's collection, he has all of those toys, um, and it was really, really um, amazing uh, to see. So that's kind of the history behind um, uh, those action figures. Um, do we, did, do we, do, since since the Star Wars action figures, have any other franchises um, come close to, um, you know, the the toy popularity? And the kind of nostalgia that those toys um, still bring up. I'm telling you just as a, a personal anecdote, when I was walking around the the museum in Oshkosh, I was transported back without question. I wanted to break the glass and play with all of them. I really, <laughs> really did. So, uh, and uh, so do we have any other examples of, um, you know, franchises that created the same kind of excitement and like, where are we today? I mean, I don't, I don't, Really, I don't have children. I don't play with toys myself. But are there, you know, modern examples? And I think Brian's going to show us. some. yes. I, so um,
0: I actually, um, y- you know, most of the franchises that have come close in terms of just like fandom and excitement are to- or toys primarily. You know, you have Transformers. It still remains very, very big. Um, you know, uh, Masters of the Universe, He-Man, still huge, way bigger than I thought. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. I was never a He-Man guy. I, I was. It was too late. It was too early for me. Um, you know, I was a Ninja Turtles kid. Ninja Turtles still remains pretty big, um, you know, and, and but nothing really hit the way because understand that Star Wars also, you know, broke the seal like licensing for Lego. Right. To my understanding, there weren't a lot of like licensed Lego sets before Star Wars. Star Wars became and because, you know, Star Wars also was like really kind of kept in the consciousness by the merchandise. Right. Um, you know, there was a point in time where nobody really cared about Star Wars, as weird as that is to say, um, you know, there was you saw the diehards who were buying the toys as Lucas was still putting them out. They had the power of the force. Um, they tried doing like, you know, transmedia tie ins with like Shadows of the Empire back um, when I was a kid, you know, with like the game and the novels and the comics and the toys and all that. Um, you know, and, the, and you know, the the Star Wars also uh, toys also going to change the way that other toy lines are made. As you mentioned, G.I. Joe, I believe these be like 12 inch kind of like uh, Barbie size dolls. Um, the more recent G.I. Joe's after that shrunk down to that 3.75 inch, uh, three and a quarter inch scale um, because of the popularity of Star Wars. It was also, I think, a cheaper way to pro- uh, you could produce them on masse. And, you know. There's a lot to take out of that, Um, you know, and you could also argue part of the reason that Phantom Menace and the prequels happened is that Lucas's toy money was drying up and you kind of needed to get some more. Um, And those toys all sold like crazy at first. And then after the movie came out, things got kind of dicey. But there's a few things about the modern action figure industry that's important to note. Number one is that there are still a lot of lines aimed at kids. But by and large, you know, one of the kind of truisms or things that gets repeated a lot is that most kids aren't playing with action figures the way they used to. Not at the same level, not at the same scale. They've got their phones, they've got video games, they've got other stuff. So a lot of what the toy aisle is becoming are higher scale action figures. So. Most action figures are going to now be in that like six to seven to maybe uh inch line. So, the modern kind of Star Wars toys they still do some of the retro throwbacks, they call them vintage. They even put them in like the old card backs with like the Kenner logo on. Kenner doesn't exist as a company, but they still use the logo. Um, you know, and, and they'll do some they also do like a, a, another line that's a little bit more articulated and has more features. But then the kind of like uh prestige hobby one right now before we even get to like imports and like action figures from like Japan and that kind of stuff, which is where it gets really crazy for collectors and all that, um, you know, is, is the black series. So these are six inch action figures. Um, they're what we call 112 scale. So, you know, technically if a character is taller than six feet, their action figures to be a little bit taller, but most of them are going to be around six inches, depending on the height of the character, right? These are going to run you about 20 to $25, depending on, you know, the character, depending on Um, the exclusivity, like some are just exclusive to target or best buy or GameStop or whatever. Um, and there's also like bigger deluxe figures. Like I think I have the, um, I basically made it my, my goal to collect as many of the Mandalorians as I could after I fell in love with that show. So I have like the heavy battle Mandalorian. Um, I forget what his official name is. Um, but he was like a bigger figure. He's like, I think like closer to 30 because he was heftier, more plastic, more accessories. Um, so, there's that kind of stuff, but and, and the ultimate result is that the toy lines are being made more and more for adults. and what they're finding is that you know we don't see as many action figures from like newer movies and characters, um, you know compared to Empire Strikes Back compared to Return of the Jedi compared to because that's really the market. The people who are die hard collectors are still preferring those. I have, you know, like Mandalorian stuff, despite how big that was, is still very rare in terms of actually being part of their toy line. Um, it was all, I mean, like we didn't really get a lot of Mandalorian stuff until the year after that show premiered. And we didn't get any like Baby Yoda Grogu merchandise until well after because Disney wanted to keep that quiet. Um, so, you know, they they actually and this is to me fascinating that they let the creative aspect of it win out over the business side, because if they could have had. Grogu baby Yoda merchandise on the shelves for Christmas that year, they would have made billions, but they waited until the next summer. So, you know, I'm not going to say props to them because I really don't want to give Disney credit for anything. Um, But, uh, you know, I do admire their restraint in this one regard. But it also kind of says, you know, these toys are increasingly meant to be collectibles put on a shelf, um, you know, and they're not necessarily as much, you know, people are like, you know, saying I've got to get like, you know, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you can't open the box, right? You can't do that. So, you know, a lot of people just like have like just walls full of boxes of figures with Star Wars or Marvel or what have you. Um, and to me, like, you know, that, that's two things. I mean, you know, the I think one of the worst things that ever happened to like uh, the comics and toy industry is the idea of the collector or speculator mentality, um, the idea that I'm going to invest money in this thing because it could be worth something someday. Um, I've never liked that personally. Like, um, I, I, you know, if I can go to comics for just a second, um, I have first appearances of miles Morales and Spider-Gwen, right. Two very important characters right now. Um, but I bought the miles Morales because I was excited about, oh, Hey, there's a new kid being Spider-Man. That's cool. Um, and it was, just, I'm just like bought it cause I want to see what that was about. Now it could potentially, if you have a good copy of it, it could be worth like $5,000, but that's not why I bought it. Right. Ditto with Spider-Gwen, a friend of mine was drawing her. So I'm like, I gotta get this book. And I, that could be worth a few hundred dollars now, but I didn't buy them for that reason. Um, but a lot of people will. And you know, the, the key thing is that. You know the economics that are such that scarcity is the important thing like these toys like the boba fett um i don't know if you're going to get if you were going to pull this later eric but the most valuable star wars toy um was the boba fett with the rocket that fires out of his backpack which was actually referenced in the mandalorian and i, I laughed pretty hard um, but uh that one because of the, you know the choking hazard or the potential damage to kids eyes never saw markets so if you have one um, that you probably got it because, like, there's a prototype or somebody got one that they shouldn't have gotten. It's worth, like, $150,000 easy right now if you have one. Like, you know, because there's so few of them, right? Man, that could be my retirement. I, I if know. you have yeah. one, yeah. Um, and and that's people are like, well, I'm going to buy this. You know, it's the same problem the comics industry had. We, you know, we saw people buy, like, 17 copies of Death of Superman because they're going to retire on that. But DC's like, okay, wow, people really want this. We're going to pay more and more. And though, so the market gets flooded. They're worth nothing. Right? You can find them like 10 cents, like, you know, the back dusty corner of your comic shop now. So my feeling is basically like, I've never been like that. And so like, obviously you can see them, you can't see these on the audio, like this is tremendous for audio, but I've got these figures, they're out of the box. I, you know, I when I have these things, I set them up, I pose them because to me, they're little works of art, right? Somebody put time into engineering this into making this work, to getting all the details right, getting the likeness right. And I find it really interesting to kind of like pose them and kind of look at them and maybe make dumb little scenarios with them. Um, that to me is really kind of what makes this stuff fun. And it's sort of playing along that idea of like the the idea of toys and creativity. But, you know, there's also the argument that it's a very limited form of creativity, right? Um, If I give you a Darth Vader, how many things can Darth Vader really do, right? You can't really make up a whole story in your head. And I think increasingly with the way that brands are very, very sort of precocious and protective – Of their intellectual property it's a lot harder to really have toys that are aimed at like well here you can do like you know maybe you can tell your own story or something like that it's more like hey here's something that evokes a specific moment from a specific movie there you go um because we're going to be aiming this at people who are older and don't really have the imagination anymore i'm not really sure how else to put it
2: it makes me sad hearing everything you just talked about it's kind of like i don't know i guess it's nostalgia um it's just it's interesting that the the toys that are being created today are completely based on nostalgia, right? And they're four collectors and I'm, I'm just feeling my age. It's like, uh, I used to play
0: outside, rectify, you know, there are some that are still being made, you know, with younger audiences and I, you still see kids in the toy all at Target all the time. Right. I have to weave past them as I'm trying to see what Marvel legends are on sale. Okay. Um, you know, but yeah, you know, increasingly like you have like, you know, Todd McFarlane, um, the guy who created spawn, he's a billionaire because of toys primarily. Right. He also kept the rights of spawn because, you know, that's a whole other podcast. We can talk about image comics in the nineties and, and how, uh, that whole industry change as a result. Um, but you know, a big part of his business is toys. And his toys, they're not, you know, they're not articulated. They don't have a lot of like accessories. You can't do a lot. They sort of like get into one pose and stand there. I have the King Shark from Suicide Squad. I love him. He's delightful. You can't do a whole lot with him. He's like a statue with some limited mobility. But again, the, the market is not for kids, it's for the grown-up collectors. But that being said, there's still a lot of toys out there for kids. Like that's still a huge part of those brands. And, um, you know, it's it's there's still they're still out there. It's just that the the economics are shifting.
3: You know, Brian, to that point, and this is a whole nother podcast is the non fungible token, sort of the rise of that as a concept, you know, like because kids are not interacting with tangible things in the same way. Like they really love their YouTubers. My kids have they're big fans of YouTubers of certain people on TikTok. But, they're not things you can hold in your hand other than your phone right but you know eric back to your question from a ways back like thinking of something similar i think about harry potter a lot and what it was like to see kids not of my generation have anticipation for something and to be waiting in line and and of course i'm partial to that because of you know my area of study that people love books and that makes me happy but I also feel like it's sort of the last thing that I can remember where you could, where it was a shared experience, a shared, and there is, I mean, millions and millions of kids that are going to be able to talk to each other as adults about Harry Potter. And I was fortunate enough to read those out loud to my daughters when they were young, and I feel a part of that, but not in the, in the same way. But to me, like that same anticipation of waiting for this thing. And being invested in it as a group that allows you to communicate to other people is Harry Potter to me is the last example that i I can think of, and it makes me happy for people that were part of that as as kids
2: I think harry uh, potter is a is a great example, and you know like you you know seeing you know photos or, or you know. News images of you know, hundreds of kids lining up at their bookstores. I, I can't. I can't be happier to to see that. Um, and you're right. It was a shared experience um, that a, a, a generation grew up with. And um, what's neat about it too, to me, is that although uh, I, you know, perhaps to varying success, they're now able to share that. Experience or and that universe that they grew up with with their kids, right? As, as you were able to do, you didn't grow up with Harry Potter, Chuck, but you you did read them to your to your daughter, which was really cool.
3: And a different um, kind of marketing, like like for me, I think what's cool about Harry Potter is that the marketing switched to clothes, like scarves and that's true, and hats, yeah. like in a way that are different rooms, yeah.
2: I yeah, I, I did want to let all of our listeners know before Ryan chimes in. Um, so Chuck is an English professor as well as our college's dean. Uh, the entire podcast, he's been holding up uh, his Walt Whitman action figure. Uh-huh. So uh, I just wanted everyone to know that we have literary action figures out there too. And and uh, yeah, Walt Whitman, one of the, the great American poets is with us today.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, my sister who had uh, her daughter was was doing the midnight you know, pickups for, for Harry Potter. And one, she, she shared with me once, I wish, I wish I had a picture of this because the idea of it actually makes me, I find very touching, but is all of the cars leaving those midnight pickups would have their internal dome lights on as the kids were reading, uh, their, their brand new books. And there's something about that, that I find quite, quite beautiful. But I I really think what, what Chuck just said is really important, that the shared experience is, is really something that um that, that doesn't exist the same way as it as it used to, you know, where people are are watching things as they come up. You know, the last show that I feel like I kind of watched at the same time other human beings were watching it and we were all sort of on maybe lost is probably an example of that. Probably breaking bad was another one. Um, but there just isn't much of that anymore, where you, you're like seeing a thing at the same time as a as a big collection of other people are seeing that thing. And I, I mean, there about- have been
2: ph- phenomenons. I mean, you know, Game of Thrones was was yep. massive, that's but it's true. interesting how quickly one. that faded, though, right? Yes. Um, and and that as that you said, there are deep lots deep of deep deep. other shows. I mean, Mad Men. I mean, more for adults than anyone else, yeah. but it's Breaking Bad as well. But I think that's a great point. You know, I was just thinking about. As you bring up the shared experience, it's so easy to make friends um, with people who were Star Wars fans um, because of that shared nostalgia. Um, quite literally, you know, I was down in Madison visiting a former colleague of ours, um, uh, Stephen Hall, and yeah, I was out at a brewery and somebody had a Star Wars shirt on, and I complimented the shirt, and, you know, off we went. And it was just, you know, um, it was an easy thing to talk about. And so I'm just imagining, you know, the, the generation that grew up with Harry Potter, they can do the exact same thing right what house are you in you know all that that kind of cool stuff so which is and that was when i think about my childhood with star wars it so much of it
1: involves now that chuck says that the conversations i had with my friends about it did you see it what what'd you think you know like all of that stuff was really really you know what and actually in context of this the, the show today what toys do you have you know that so much of it was sharing those do you have this do you have this i just got this that kind of thing
3: Yep it's one of the few things like I'm not going to articulate this the way I want to it's going to come off wrong but like having a time when having less choice was pro- had a byproduct that was productive and you know I in my schooling as a kid I would this is also not going to come out right but I, as a white uh person I was a minority in the mid, in my schools most often and like the ability like I, this is why one thing I'm nostalgic for. I'm nostalgic for '80s Michael Jackson and Prince because those two figures allowed connection across racial lines in the ways that Star Wars did and Harry Potter and, and those kinds of things. But I, I sort of long. This is terrible. I long for less choice. I, you know,
2: I'm a socialist. Hey, we're all we're all familiar with the paradox of choice, right? When when we have too many options whether it's entertainment or, you know, dates or whatever it may be, you can become completely paralyzed and it becomes overwhelming. I mean, this this was a phenomenon during the, the, the pandemic stay at home. People actually started getting tired of streaming because there was just too much. I mean, Netflix is putting out an unbelievable amount of, of product, right, to varying degrees of quality. Um, and I think people are getting tired of that. Um and Chuck I think that's an absolute I I lament that as well. I absolutely lament that as well. My
3: daughters are interested now in vinyl so we have a record player in the house and the the draw is weirdly not so much the records which they can they can listen to the songs but they love the they love the insert material. They love the liner notes with the sort of lost art of that and like all of the things that that come with that but I just wanted it's to, a, add to it, go ahead, Ryan.
2: Absolutely, I, I, I ran. I ran into Chuck and uh, one of his daughters uh, buying vinyl at, at Barnes and Noble. I think on Christmas Eve. Yeah, last that was year.
3: Madeline. Yeah.
2: That's season. Yeah, man. it was. It was awesome. And I mean, that experience is so different um, because you have the artwork, you have the liner notes, you have the lyrics, right? Um, and then you just have the experience as well of you you, you can't skip on a record player, right? And you can't do random, you can't shuffle. You have to sit down and listen to it from beginning to end. I mean, you can stop it obviously, but it's a a different visceral experience too. Um, The same thing that like going to see a movie, I went to see The Green Knight over the weekend, which was fantastic if you if all haven't seen it. Uh, really great, you know, modern interpretation of Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. Um, going to the movies is a different experience than streaming something at home because you can be like, oh, I don't like this. And what ends up happening to me most of the time is I end up spending more time trying to find something to to, to, to consume or to watch that I waste all that time and I have to go to bed. So that's what that's what happened to me. So I think that's <laughs> I think it's a great point, Chuck, about, um, you know, having too much choice. And I am really, you know, I have to bring in my colleagues from Democracy and Justice Studies and see what they have <laughs> to say about do we need a more undemocratic, um, you know, entertainment world? Um, it's, that would be a great conversation, actually. Right? You know, I wanted to say this is going to sound weird and I hope I don't
1: I don't want to minimize anything here, but, you know, a a thing that I've got me thinking about it with the uh, the the shared experience piece, you know, a thing that I'm moderately nostalgic for right now, and this is going to sound odd, but is the beginning of the pandemic versus where we are right now, which I know that seems weird, but, you know, it, it felt like in the beginning, one, there was some community that had been sort of around this shared crisis that we were in. And we weren't doing a ton of arguing about the best thing to do. It was like, there's this acknowledgement that we should deal with this. But here's the thing that came out in the midst of all that, which was just awful, awful television, was Tiger King. And this was sort of the last show that I feel like I watched. With other people, you know that that this was a thing that, as we were talking through some examples, that I sort of felt like I'm watching this and other people are too, and we can talk about it. Now, it was awful, awful television, but there's a piece of me that is still sort of kind of hung up on that. Like I wish we had we had communed around a different show, um, and there were <laughs> there were lots of other better opportunities there. But I did like having that. and I and I so there's a piece of me that misses that.
2: So let's Well, I mean, a show, everybody. Yeah, I mean, you're <laughs> right that those early months in March, April, it was uh, we had never really done anything like that before. Um, and and so we had an opportunity and it is kind of a shame. I mean, Tiger King was great, but also awful, as you said. And it is too bad that there wasn't a kind of better um, shared piece of of entertainment or popular culture that we could have rallied around. Although I think in some ways, Tiger King uh, epitomizes, you know, our our current country and world in some ways. So, I mean, I think it was, yeah. it was
3: ap- apropos. You know, I, I'm interested to, Ryan's point is a really good one. I, and to me, this would predate the pandemic, but I'm interested in how some of the things we rally around now and will be nostalgic for are coming from different places, you, you know? And so we haven't really talked, I mean, we've mentioned Marvel, but I, I do think there is a community around Marvel that is significant, but um my, so I'm thinking about Hamilton, and Hamilton as a phenomenon, something that I can see people being nostalgic for in the future, and, and that's something that I bonded with my kids over. They actually knew it before me, again, as usual, but um, <laughs> I'm interested in the progress of that, of how, you know, when I'm arguing for less choice, I want to be clear that I'm aware of the ways in which that excluded non-white communities in, in many yeah, ways no I just want to be clear but hamilton reminding me of that but the way that Lynn manuel miranda has then you know they sent touring companies so people outside of new york could see it traveling shows but then turning it into a film you know broadcasting it live that, that i think there are ways he's kind of teaching people how to create community in that way using modern media which i it's still an unformed thought but i feel like hamilton is also something that is an unexpected sort of thing that's created huge community that i know that i'll be nostalgic for um in the future just because of how much i love rap music and history i mean it, it was crazy to think about
2: i mean the the book um is is this massive you know not necessarily dry but it's a it's a it's a, written by a historian it's it's a it's a is biography is Cherno. chernow yep correct um yep. run chernow and to think that you know an, an academic a popular academic um biography of yeah, to what most of a people an obscure founding father could become this cultural phenomenon and turned into um you know uh, an amazing musical production it's, that's pretty crazy. I'm just thinking about all my historian colleagues who are hoping that their book will be the next thing that when Manuel
3: Miranda you know turns into.: like, a, If there were a Hamilton action now. figures,: if there were Hamilton action figures, I would buy the full set.
2: It's a great question. Are there not? I, I, I do not know.:
3: Maybe there are. I better start looking.
2: Don't
1: look it up, Chuck, because,
2: uh, you know, Christmas <laughs> is right around the corner and
3: I've
1: been looking for a gift for you. So we'll find out. But-
2: Ryan's Ryan's on it. Um, so why don't we what why don't we connect um, to uh, both the prequels and perhaps even more importantly, the sequel trilogy trilogy? Um, and J.J. Uh, Abrams's use of nostalgia—I think that might be a, a good a good place to to go. Uh, but also with the Mandalorian and the Clone Wars um, and uh, Rebels TV shows, um, if any of us watch those. Um, but uh, a lot of critics, when um, The Force Awakens was released in in 2005, offered a critique that it was basically, you know, a beat by beat. Um, kind of uh, update or homage of Star Wars, A New Hope. Um, as Brian pointed out earlier, um, you know, Star Wars is basically a beat-by-beat retelling of uh, The Hidden Fortress, um, uh, the great Kurosawa film. Uh, Lucas drew inspiration from a lot of places, but if you watch The Hidden Fortress, um, which is you know, one of the great films of all time, it's it's very, very similar. Um, so how much, uh, you know, um, veracity is there to that, um, that the, the sequels um, instead of, um, branching out and creating, um, you know, or breaking new ground, um, we're simply, you know, retreading star Wars's legacy. Um, and, and was, 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 uh, just benefiting from nostalgia
0: rather than going in new directions. I mean, like, um, I, I just want to say there are in fact Hamilton toys. Um, they're, they're, Mostly Funko Pops, but... Um, we
2: know what Chuck saying. is getting for Christmas.
0: <laughs> um, you just ruined the surprise, Brian. <laughs> I'm very sorry, but uh, that's why they always said I was a ruiner. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I think there is a lot of truth to that. And, and you know, part of it is, um, you know, Abrams as a as a filmmaker and as a creative has always been kind of interested in his own nostalgia. I mean, you look at a lot of the movies he's made, there's definite clear, clear callbacks like the Spielberg era, um, films, uh, you know, from the 80s, you know, ET, um, you know, you have like Stand By Me, which wasn't a Spielberg film, but you know what I mean, that kind of, uh, that kind of material. Um, and, you know, Force Awakens is absolutely that. And I think part of it was uh, intentional to try to win back some of the fans who maybe put off by the prequels. Um, but uh you know and, and certainly there's an argument to be made and I've had you know conversations with Star Wars fans who are just like, you know there's this is a cycle right um, it's like you know the, the you know history doesn't always repeat but it rhymes and so you know there is that idea of like well why wouldn't they have just given up on a planet killing weapon like why wouldn't you know why why wouldn't they do that again right like why you know um, how do these themes and, and to me again, the parts of those pre those sequels that are interesting are not the kind of like, oh here's a callback call to this here's it's more like here's that's really interrogating the fallout of an ongoing, never-ending galactic war, right? The the names change, but the forces don't, right? The impact it has on people around them. But it absolutely is. And and part of that is the fact that when Disney buys Star Wars, they're not buying it saying, we wanna really just revolutionize and go in weird new directions. They're like, this is a brand. And it is a brand that we can make saleable across a a vast variety of consumer goods and theme park experiences and you know, uh, films and TV shows, and, and we can have our comics uh, arm at Marvel publish this. And so they're like, what's the stuff that sells? The stuff that sells is this. Well, we can't just go back and redo those movies. We can't remake or reboot them. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna do another movie updated for modern sensibilities we're going to for instance pretend that there are more than two women in the entire galaxy which was a start um we're going to pretend that there are more than two people of color in the entire galaxy um unfortunately they are going to get bullied off of social media by uh reprobates and uh terrible people but we're disney we don't really care about that um you know because we got our money um You know, that's uh, that's a whole other conversation, just the the, just the really toxic and terrible nature of the Star Wars fandom that really becomes fueled by nostalgia in a lot of ways. But we don't really have time to get into that. Um, But, you know, it's to me, that's exactly what these movies are. And, you know, you all blanched just just were horrified when I said that I think The Last Jedi is the best one. And part of the reason that it is, is because it also basically looks at nostalgia and says, hey maybe things weren't so great maybe things aren't perfect maybe the things that we look up to and we aspire to will let us down but that's okay it doesn't make them less good or less valuable but we have to have distance from we have to understand it and put it into context and in so doing kind of chart our own course and then jj abrams came back and said okay okay sorry 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 about all that we're sorry to challenge you here's the empire the emperor is back and then here's lando and it's gonna be great don't it's gonna be fine and that was really the biggest explainer of that movie. I <laughs> it's will say be that like
2: everybody Frick, calm down. <laughs> yeah.
0: One of the, I reject, uh, all, of that. I, I, I reject all that. I reject all that. It's one of the greatest star Wars weirdos. I am one of my big fandoms in star Wars are the background weirdos, the little aliens, little puppets, Babu Frick top notch saved that movie for me.
2: Babu Frick was a great yes. character. I agree. Yeah. I
1: do actually think, I think Brian is mostly right about what happened as far as the, tr- the nostalgia trajectory. I, I hate The Last Jedi for a lot of reasons, none of which were captured in that specific argument, but I agree with you that that is what happened, that J.J. That, that Abrams, that that trajectory is, is kind of how things fall through. Um, I, I think there's something really interesting about the way, um, I guess, the struggle, actually, I think Star Wars has had trying to replicate what Marvel has had so much success with. And I actually think it's worth noting how many different people have struggled to try and replicate the, the extended universe. I mean, justice league has failed miserably at it. Not quite as bad as the dark universe that, uh, they were trying to create with what swamp monster and mummy and all of that, uh, whoever was trying to create that, you know, I, I think James Bond has actually talked about trying to create a, the shared universe off and on for a little while. Then not that they don't have the characters for it, but, um, they've, they've considered that and and frankly it might roll out once this daniel craig movie comes out and they have to reboot things in in a few years you know i think it's worth noting how many different groups have sort of failed at that um but i do you know the thing that i'm really hung up on now since we've been talking about it is what will my kids be nostalgic for in in 15 years or 10 years you know what are those things going to be will it be marvel will it be I I don't know. I mean, that that's the thing that I've had the most success getting them interested in. They really love and are intrigued by Marvel uh, more so than any of these other things. Um, But I I don't know. As
2: we were talking about earlier, a lot of the the media that um, people are consuming younger it's ephemeral, right? TikTok, YouTube stars. I mean are, are are they going to be reminiscing about those in in, in ten or fifteen years? I, I I hope not, but um they are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, they
1: are. I think it's really interesting. I mean, my kids literally when they are allowed screen time, they have YouTube playing on the big TV while they play like Roblox or Minecraft on their on their iPads you know and so like so who are the things is it just gonna is it gonna be Minecraft is that the thing or Roblox or whatever you know is that the thing they'll be nostalgic for
0: I don't know I mean you can see it now like you look at like Gen Z and I, and I really have never liked the assigning of labels to generation like you know the year you're born shouldn't define your whole personality it's just kind of like okay this is the circumstance to which you were born I'm a proud
2: so- angsty Gen Xer
0: but yeah, me too. But also the month you're born should. Right. Because I'm a Sagittarius and I've got something. I mean, to say about it. sure. That's,
2: whatever. Our, that's our next podcast. That's whatever our next
0: podcast. Um, but, you know, you see a lot of it like they're looking like, oh, man, remember Spongebob? Like, yeah. Remember, like, you know, like what about this guy from like the, you know, the like 2000, like, you know, I Carly is the whole thing. Like there's already nostalgia and reboots for iCarly, which I thought was still on the air. I have no idea what the youth are up to okay um it's it's very much like you know i see people like saying like looking back fondly on you know retro video gaming with the xbox 360 and i just want to like shake them like no you don't get to do that that's not that is not a thing you can do but you know nostalgia i think just happens faster and faster especially because of the time we're in. When you look around, we have, you know, not to bring the room down, but there was just that report that came out that said we're basically, we've already missed our window to stop climate change. Um, You know, you look at the pandemic and you look at the economic prospects facing a lot of young people. Yeah, they're going to want to retreat back to the days of SpongeBob and iCarly. They're going to want to go back to the, you know, um, playing uh, Pokemon and that kind of stuff. That's going to be where they want to go. Nostalgia, I think, you know there are problems with it but i think it also is kind of a you know psychological not to take the psychologist thunder here um but i think there is sort of a psychological balm that it provides and i can never fully fault anybody who wants to say hey you know what makes me happy is when i was a kid i wanted a boba fett or i wanted an ad at and i'm you know now i have the chance to get one and i have it in my office and it reminds me of better times while i'm sitting here working on expense reports that to me is what is there's nothing wrong with that collect away That's-
2: What's more interesting to me, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure our our elders when we were kids didn't necessarily understand our attraction to a lot of the things that we are now nostalgic for. Right. Um, it would be more interesting, I think, to talk to some Gen Z folks, uh, you know, perhaps on a, a, a later podcast about. What they think about nostalgia. And um, I mean, I think it is in many ways a generational thing, right? Because you you have this window as a as a kid when you're developing your worldview, when you're developing your sensibility, when you're developing your personality. And I mean, I'm I'm in my early 40s now. I I can't possibly connect with a lot of those things. And that's nobody's fault. It's just I have no interest in watching TikTok or uh, or people on TikTok or a bunch of the YouTube things or playing Pokémon Go and I mean um that's okay right I would rather just watch a new hope over and over again um but uh, that's so I think it's a great question Ryan that you brought up about what you know the the generation now um and not even Gen Gen Z because they're starting to age out of what will be nostalgic right um it's the the next generation who are um, you know, only now coming into their, you know, their, their double digit years, what they will be nostalgic about um, in 10, 15 or 20 years. So it's a great, great question.
3: When are we going to get that Paw Patrol movie? There's something uh, to that fun, fun, too, in that plus. we have to earn our audiences is something that I think people like J.J. Abrams and you know, maybe they don't quite latch onto yet, but like you know quality production, and I'm just gonna say writing there is there are writers behind most of the things that we are nostalgic for and that we've talked about, and the need for good writing. but in terms of resolution, I don't think you're thinking of the new Star Wars movies that we need resolutions that are beyond okay, blow this thing up, and the problems are solved and I mean, at least with Marvel and i I forget what the last installment was called, but I mean, at least there was an effort there that the resolution was some kind of healing and bringing something back rather than destroying something. And I know that's an oversimplification of of that. But there I think younger people need different types of resolution than the kinds of things that we're nostalgic for. And there's
2: though I would I would say I think the original trilogy, Darth Vader's redemption is is. So important there. I don't think the destruction of the Death Star and the Emperor is is necessarily the most important part of that story. Um, it's the redemption, and I, I think in the, in the sequel trilogy we don't have that to the same extent, right? I don't think Kylo Ren's sacrifice is in any way, shape, or form as emotional um, or full of depth as what happens with Darth Vader slash Anakin. Um, I mean, it still brings tears to my eyes, like when vader makes that sacrifice i don't like the the no that george lucas added to the the blu-ray um again but um but i think you're right though that 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 that's an important component to all of these stories is that there has to be something deeper than just blowing up right and i think that is without question something that's absolutely lacking from the most recent sequel trilogy of star wars well Any final thoughts? I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation and I know our listeners will too. This has been really, really awesome. So thank all of you. Thanks to all of you for, for, um, for talking Star Wars and nostalgia. Um, Anyone want to conclude with any final thoughts about um, nostalgia, Star Wars, anything else in your minds?
0: I like Star Wars. I think Star Wars is great.
1: (laughs) I will say I loved
3: Star Wars when I was a kid. I I think it's okay now. I'm happy to have watched the, the original trilogy with my kids as a way that they got to understand something about me and in the way that reading Harry Potter with them and being interested in things they're interested in teaches me about them in some ways. And I, I'm i going to veer away from Star Wars, but I, I'm really interested in things that succeed for multi-generations, right? And like different generations, to your point about generations, having nostalgia for the same thing or the same creator. And I've been thinking about Stephen King a lot in this way lately in that my mother introduced me to Stephen King. And I read have read a lot of Stephen King. My kids read Stephen King. And so there's like three generations of this thing. Maybe we're not nostalgic for the same actual works, but I, I'm interested in those things. Hamilton's that's why I brought that up earlier. That seems like a transgenerational sort of, of phenomenon, but
2: well, it's interesting. You bring that, that up. I was talking to a, a solid millennial and what's fascinating to me as a gen Xer, a very, uh, I was a young gen Xer, but grunge is back. Like it's, it's, it's in fashion. Um, Damn right.
3: It is man,
2: you know, all, all the, all the, the, the youth in their twenties, they love, they love, they love that stuff. I'm not sure how, like, deep into it they're going i don't know if like people are listening to like l7 and seven year bitch and stuff like that but like the the mainstream you know uh smashing pop, popular l- grunge is, is 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 huge particularly the fashion like i i find that um that kind of stuff really really fascinating um as long as disco doesn't come back and <laughs> the, 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 no. uh, the accompanying clothing but it probably will of multiple
0: times
1: yeah a variation of that, Chuck, is how often characters have come back. So, you know, Nancy Drew, my, my wife was obsessed with Nancy Drew when she was a kid. And those books have been written by different authors, like new versions of them, you know, that my kids are now interested in. Um, there's a new TV show. So the the, you know, the the reboot culture has allowed us to bring that stuff back in a way that is it's not the same author the way like the King example, but it's some of the same characters kind of coming back and being, being part of that
3: for adults, Perry Mason on on HBO. I saw
1: just, this will be my final, my final edition here today, but that is, I saw an ad last night for he's all that, which is she's all that (laughs) uh, essentially (laughs) as a, as a male version. (laughs) And it it seems to be that it's like the next generation um that it's because rachel lee cook is in it as a mom
3: character i think so and we haven't even mentioned cobra kai yet but that's <laughs> <I> just <laughs> finished <laughs> that's that yep.
2: I, I just think we're gonna have to do a part two um of this show at some point well chuck Ryback, ryan martin brian carr uh my colleagues and friends it's a uwgb thank you so much for um joining me on this uh, crossover podcast this was my first time doing a crossover podcast between three great shows which was really awesome and uh thanks to our listeners of course for joining us i'd also like to thank uh jared roll again he is the curator of star wars the nostalgia awakens he was not able to join us today to talk star wars and his his amazing collection um but without his exhibit um i would not have put together this 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 amazing episode uh so thanks to jared and uh for um, you know, rekindling some of that imagination. I just want to end with an anecdote um, at the uh, very end of my experience, seeing uh, the nostalgia awakens at the Oshkosh Public Museum. As I was saying, it's, it's a really wonderful exhibit. Um, he shows it all over the place. You, listeners, you'll, you'll certainly be able to have a chance to see it again. Um, but as I was uh, walking through the exhibit, looking at all of these toys that reminded me of my own childhood, I um, eavesdropped on a father who was exploring the collection with uh, his two young children. And um, the father's enthusiasm for the toys and nostalgia um, and the connection that he had with his kids, that they were also excited about it, um, that was immediate to me and such a strong and cheerful reaction um, by his children to that experience and these toys just really made me smile. And so it was clear to me that Star Wars allowed a deep connection and sense of wonder shared between generations. Um, Our Childhoods Matter and uh, Jared's awesome exhibit reminded me of everything I loved about storytelling, both real and imagined. And it was a unique experience to return, however briefly, to the memories of my childhood, when dreams becoming a jedi and adventuring a galaxy far far away fueled my young imagination and indeed it still does today
0: for another episode of serious fun thank you very much for listening as a reminder serious fun is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay the executive producer is Ryan Martin the production manager is Kate Farley this week's episode I have to give a hat tip to Eric Morgan who produced everything you heard apart from these wraparounds Uh, so thank you Eric great job on that Uh, and again thanks to Eric also for being a part of this, and thanks to Ryan and Chuck, and just for all of them having me be a part of this. Definitely go check out Voyager and Cannonball and all the other great shows uh, on the Phoenix Studios Network at uwgb.edu slash podcasts. You can get all the past episodes and future episodes and subscribe all in one location. As always, I am your host for serious fun, Dr. Brian Carr. Thank you for listening.
2: Just listen to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, please visit
0: uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.